a very good morning to you. We're live from Midori House in London and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, coming up today here at Midori House. My guests, Vincent McAvinney and Isabel Hilton, will share their views on the week's biggest story. Vinny, good morning. What have you spotted? Good morning. Uh, lots in the papers this morning. I'm really intrigued uh, by the comments yesterday from the new First Minister of Northern Ireland, Michelle O'Neill, about potentially having a border poll in the next year. Lots of commentary as well as the UK engages in a third night of joint strikes with the US in Yemen about how woefully under sort of sourced and prepared our armed forces are um, and the other thing uh, lots of reviews of the Oscar films finally coming out here on this side of the Atlantic You've as been well binging at the Nelson household I know that <laughs> Isabel what have you spotted hello <laughs> hello I'm still intrigued by the uh, by the ongoing drama of the world's biggest ever bankruptcy which is the Evergrande property company and what's going to happen to all those people who paid for flats that they haven't uh, that they haven't got um there was an there's been an outbreak of scientific fraud um 10,000 papers had to be retracted last year have been discovered not to be based on any serious work um and there seems to be a bit of an epidemic um there's a there's a problem with the year of the dragon which is that apparently it's a very unlucky year in which to get married Brilliant. which is a very awkward if you're trying to boost your population okay let's not got married this uh, this year we'll head to bangkok though to get the latest from the region this is james chambers Monocle's Asia editor, and I'll be coming on the show a little later on from a very warm and a very sunny Bangkok to talk about some of the stories that are getting people hot under the collar in the Thai capital. It's the 4th of February 2024, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. And a very good morning to you, wherever you are listening from, if you're listening live or if you've taken us to the gym or for a walk or you're out with your dog. Thank you for putting us in your ears. Um, I'm delighted to say joining me in the studio, Isabel Hilton and Vincent McAvinney. How have the weeks, how's the week been, ladies and gentlemen? I've been in the in the sort of like hot, cold, very tropical, balmy temperatures of about 15 degrees yesterday in London, but then also dressed up like a snowman at the beginning of the week. My flat is a mess because I don't know what clothes to put away, keep in, keep out. It's it's causing domestic chaos. How about you, Vinny? Where have you been? I've mostly been here this week, actually. It's been quite a monocle-intensive uh, week for me, but very enjoyable. Uh, have sort of made some trips to the cinema this week, trying to catch sort of Oscar films uh, now that the awards race uh, is well and truly underway. Um, and, yeah, without and about yesterday reporting, again, big protests in London, uh, thousands of people taking to the streets uh, in support of uh, Palestine. And they had a, a good weather yesterday for it, but it's a bit wet and miserable here today, isn't it? Isabella. Um, very briefly, well, how's your week been? Uh, we'll come to Brussels in a minute. You've got some Brussels stories to tell. Yes, yes, a quick trip to Brussels, but otherwise uneventful here in London. Uh, it's more exciting next week when I'm going to Ukraine. Oh, oh my goodness. Right, OK, we'll find out about that. Um, speaking of... Uh, far-flung destinations. I'm delighted to say that we can go to the Caribbean now where we're joined by our editorial director, Tyler Brule, who's at sea uh, near Gustavia, near St. Bart's, I believe, where the time has just gone four minutes past five in the morning. Bonjour, Tyler. Bonjour. Good morning, Emma. Well, how are you? Where Where are you, Tyler? <laughs> well, right now, as you said, I'm, I'm heading towards uh, St. Bart's at the moment and I am off the island of Saba uh, and uh, sort of cussing through Dutch territory uh, and uh, heading northeast for the, at the moment uh, for St. Bart's on board the Explorer 1, which is a new vessel 
uh, which in fact I have to say that we've, we've worked on. I say we, meaning our, our colleagues at our design agency, Wink Creative. Uh, so we developed the Explorer brand, and this is a ship which is part of the MSC fleet, part of the MSC group, of course. Our listeners will be famous, will be very familiar with seeing the uh, yellow MSC containers uh, atop ships and uh, on train uh, flatbeds around the world. Uh, this is their their new, more premium division uh, that they have developed, and we're, we're sort of I don't know, are we kicking the tires, kicking the rudder, I guess, something like that. Wonderful. I mean, I'm just just doing a little bit of sort of internet exploration of your thing, and you've you've got 14 decks to to play on, haven't you? We have 14 decks to play on, but it's not, it's not a beast of a ship. Uh, it's not like, uh, of course, the, the recent offer that we were having a, a laugh about, I believe, only only last week. Uh, there's not 40 restaurants. I think there's there's maybe six or seven, um, and we're talking about uh, passenger count, which is only in the hundreds, uh, not the thousands. It's, it's important because I think it's a one-to-one-and-a-quarter hotel uh, host-to-guest ratio. I mean, how does that make you feel? Uh, the, uh, the, 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 well, the passenger to guest rate ratio, uh, of course, is is important, um, uh, but it's also interesting as well. There, this is early days. The ship went to sea uh, just over the summer period. It was slightly delayed, uh, and as a result, as well, they're not uh, filling it up to capacity yet either. Because, of course, um, I don't think there's probably many kinks to be worked out. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, they're keeping it fully staffed, uh, but I think they're keeping the passenger numbers a little bit lower to ensure that they can deliver uh, what they're promising. So, I mean, there's always a question that you always ask about cruises, which is, what do you do all day? <laughs> well, it, it, there's a curious relationship that you develop with a ship because we we've, we started off in Barbados, uh, stopped in St. Lucia, decided not to get off the ship uh, because there was too much exploration to be to be done. We were in St. Kitts yesterday, and I have to say, I, I couldn't wait to get back on the ship. You you have this odd relationship that this you know the, the vessel becomes very cocoon like, it's very familiar. Sometimes you step off, and you're like, okay, maybe this 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 is not the island for me, uh, and and you want to you want to scamper scamper back. But listen, of course, uh, you're, there's, there's plenty of and this is the amazing thing. There's just so much space on on the ship. Uh, so yes, if you want to go play board games, Emma, if you want to do spa, if you want to play pickleball, uh, of course, you just want to grab the sun. You can do all of that. One of the amazing things they've done, though, there's no library on the ship, but the amount of books in every room is kind of remarkable. So you know, you can run sort of the full range of, of yeah, if, if, if you want um, a little bit of. German fiction, uh, or you want uh, a, a new English language best, bestseller, there's a good chance that this, the, the titles will be stocked in your room. So um, that's actually one of the more impressive features, I thought, because, yeah, I have to say, you know, the, the video fair and everything else is probably not so exciting. Tell us a little bit about your journey here. I mean, you've written about it in your column this, this week, about the fact that you had a moment of Canadian pride. I did. Well, obviously, we're, we're on this ship, uh, of course, to, to check out uh, the branding work that we did. But I was I was flying down on uh, on Air Canada, uh, and this is, of course, another airline that we've worked on many, many years ago. But there's this lovely moment on the plane with lovely Barbara, who I've never met. Somehow she's met my mother at some point. Um, and this is kind of amazing, because you were not talking, you know, Air Canada's on it. <laughs> A ten aircraft airline. You're talking about a fleet of hundreds of planes. It is one of the world's biggest airlines, and yet Barbara and the crew took the time to write a thank you note uh, for all of the branding work that we did, saying you know, it was great that we brought back the the roundel, which is you know 
for anyone in aviation. This was this was you know, the, the maple leaf locked up inside a circle. It was part of you know, it's probably one of the most iconic logos that had been deleted from from the airlines. Uh, you could say, sort of your brand language. Uh, and when we were given the assignment, um, I guess a little under a decade ago, to redo Air Canada, we brought back the roundel, slightly recut it. Um, and this is obviously to, to the delight of the, uh, certainly the, the officers at the front of, uh, in, in seats uh, left and right in the cockpit, uh, but also the crew um, as well. And yeah, it made me, it was one of those moments where I felt very proud to be Canadian. It's absolutely a lovely story. Thank you for that. Um, just tell us a little bit. I mean, could you just describe what we can, what you can see at the moment? Because I think we're before sunrise where you are at the moment. So I'm imagining not much. But but I bet. But are you uh, are you on deck? Are you hunkered down in the cabin? Where where are you, Tyler? And what can we see? Because we've never done an we've done a, we've never done a ship to shore, and it's quite exciting. It is quite exciting, and we we did, we did try to actually go down the route just before going on air, uh, probably much to the frustration uh, of, of our uh, studio manager to, to get, uh, of course, a, a connection via the ship's, uh, yeah, I would, of course, satellite uh, system and Wi-Fi. That didn't quite work. But I can see the island of Saba uh, off uh, to the port side of, of the ship uh, right now. And, uh, yeah, that is, of course, the Dutch territory. This is why we have, a, 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 of course, a mobile connection. Um, and I believe I can see... Probably St. Barth's, this is just the light because it is it's still pitch black. Um, but if I look if I look below as well, obviously the ship is, is bloodlit. Uh, yeah, certainly towards the bow of the ship, but I'm I'm just sort of looking a little bit forward. Very calm seas at the moment. And there's a couple of sort of yeah, I can see some other light on the horizon, which I would imagine would be would be other vessels because of course St. Barth's is the land at this time of year of course of, of many a gin palace. Uh, speaking of Jim Palace, are you heading to Gustavia? I, yes, we are heading, we're heading to Gustavia. This is actually one of the few ships that calls uh, on Gustavia. I think that uh, probably the St. Barth authorities don't like monster ships uh, descending on, on the rather small uh, French territory. So uh, we will be uh, yeah, pulling into harbour. And actually, I'm, we're, we're getting off the ship. That's one of the exciting things. You have to sign one of these forms that says you really break the journey. Um, so we are choosing to break the journey. We're getting off uh, in St. Barth. They're not so thrilled about this concept on the ship, but of course you can do it. Uh, and we're spending a night there and then uh, jumping on uh, Air France out of St. Martin um, and flying back uh, flying back to Paris uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, Monday, Monday evening. So you say goodbye to the ship later on today? We say goodbye to the ship at 10 o'clock. There will be a tender waiting for us. To take us ashore, and that's it's a, and I've never, to be honest, I've never been to St. Barth. It'll, it'll certainly be something that will likely hit the column uh, next week, uh, and uh, we'll be, yeah, very sort of keen to uh, to check uh, the island out today. It is supposed to be beautiful, sunny. The weather is supposed to change, though. Uh, they say that it's, so it's going to get a bit uh, brisk and, and, and fresh. Uh, the, the captain, uh, a wonderful Italian woman. Warned everybody over the over the tannoy that uh, things get maybe a little bit more fresh from uh, from Monday evening. So they'll be uh, pulling up anchor and uh, and the, the ship heads to Dominica after this. Wonderful. Um, and uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of Gustavia on a map. Um, it has got possibly the naughtiest looking map I've ever seen. I'll just let you look at it later on. Um, Tyler, <laughs> we've studied it. You've you studied it, right? <laughs> you know what we're talking about. 
We do, we do. Um, anybody who's not seen a map of Gustavia, um, look away. That's all I can say. Uh, Tyler, thank you so much uh, for joining us on Monocle on Sunday's first uh, Caribbean ship to shore call, uh, call. Thank you so much, Captain. Thanks, Emma. Happy travels to our editorial director, Tyler Brule there. there. Um, I think my guests in the studio, um, Vinny and Isabel, have, uh, are furiously Googling the map of Gustavo. <laughs> there, there may be a shocked silence any Have you moment. seen it? No, I haven't. <laughs> Let us know when you have. It's great. Um, OK, Isabel, before we, we, we headed off to the Caribbean mm. uh, to join our, our editorial director, you were telling us about Brussels. Um, you had a little trip there to, this week and, and you had to, and it was the wider context that you were saying just before we came on air, which is the, the, the sort of like the little navigating dance that everybody has to do now between the United Kingdom and Europe. It's really difficult because diplomats, um, particularly, you know, posted to the European Union, were accustomed to being absolutely in the thick of it. You know, all the meetings, all the processes, all the arguments. And after Brexit, they're not. And it's very difficult because um, their European colleagues are not really allowed to, you know, talk to them very much. They're not in the meetings and they're sitting there slightly um, wondering what's going on and occasionally asking think tanks, you know, ground for breakfast so they can find out. So they've they've devised a, a programme of, of events, uh, which means that they, you know, they give a jolly event or a talk or a, and invite people to have a drink. And that means they can, you know, keep up their contacts. So. And keeping up the contacts, I mean, do they literally say what's going on in agriculture, farm, the, industry? Well, well, with the usual subtlety, diplomatic subtlety, yes. I mean, there was a, there was a breakfast hosted in an absolutely wonderful wonderful dining room where um, Wellington... Was it this dining room? I think I was That's there the in one. It looks like ex- a Versailles Hall of Mirrors. amazing hall. Yes. Weird. So, so Vinny has not been Googling a map of Gustavia. No. He's done he's, both. I've done so, both. So that's the dining room of the British residence, um, which overlooks the Royal Park. Yeah. And uh, it's where uh, uh, Wellington's cavalry dined the night before the Battle of Waterloo, which they nearly lost, you remember. They were saved by Blucher's uh, late arrival. It is quite wonderful. And they can invite... You know, quite senior officials, and then they can find out what's going on. And what did you? And what was your role in all this? I, I was the bait, if you like. I was talking about China, which which the European Commission is keen to know about. In fact, so keen that they have started a program of visiting fellows on China to the European Commission because they realise that you know China's everywhere and China expertise is not everywhere. So they they've 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 they're keen to. They're keen to discuss it. What were they? What were they after finding out? Well, there's a big uh, trade dispute upcoming with um, with electric vehicles. Um, there's a big overhang from China's support of Russia and Ukraine, which has very much soured relations. At the same time, Germany, which was the most successful European economy vis-a-vis China, is entering recession and it's uh, losing market share, but it's still quite keen to hang on to what it's got. So you've got Ursula von der Leyen coming up for re-election this year. Beijing does not want Ursula von der Leyen again because she's been quite tough on China. She's quite likely to get elected. Um, but the, the, a lot of German business pressure is on her not to be too confrontational. So, you know, they want to know what uh, other people think of China's approach. They want to know, you know, what China might be trying to do in terms of fragmenting European um, opinion. For example, promising 
investment in Ireland and vis-a-vis travel for Irish passport holders, of whom I happen to be one. Um, so there's there's a lot of activity at the moment um, between Brussels and the European Union, and and the officials are keen to, you know, just just you know trade 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 views. Finney, what are your thoughts just on this? Touching on one point you raised, that I think the electric cars thing is fascinating because everything yeah. you read is that European and American automakers are terrified that yeah. they're now being outsold in China by domestic brands Indeed. like um, uh, uh, BYD, BYD and Xpeng yeah. and Neo, yeah. uh, and they've overtaken Tesla now, and so yeah. you know all of these historical car brands that are trying to make this pivot uh, and yet they're having problems now with the sort of fear of electric cars, fear and anxiety over range distance and how they're performing in cold weather has really knocked their sales back in the last six months. But they're simply worried that if sort of very cheap Chinese cars come in tariff free, uh, that people will adopt those rather than the traditional automakers that are having to pay for, you know, rebuilding all of their factories and changing everything over and the new contracts involved. That's going to be interesting to watch in the course of the US election, whether or not, I mean, Donald Trump has signalled he doesn't like electric cars whatsoever. He doesn't like uh, any climate. He doesn't like anything uh, like that. No. But, uh, you know, even Joe Biden, who's yeah. in some ways been protectionist uh, when it comes to the US economy, whether or not he sort of decides, OK, well, we need to keep, you know, he's very close with the auto workers unions. They've come out and backed him in the election, whether or not they need to protect that investment those companies are making in US electric cars by putting tariffs on and whether that then gives Europe the room to say oh, we'll do the same to protect yeah. Germany. The, the thing is the, the, the gap is huge. It's, it's €10,000 a vehicle, the price mm. gap between a BYD car and, and a VW. And frankly, the European, the Western car makers have been really slow. Yes. You know, the, the Chinese price advantage is partly based on the fact that they have completely integrated supply chains, including in batteries. BYD starts as a battery company, mm. as you know. And... Uh, they're they're now sort of like rabbits in the headlights. So, yeah. it, but the economic impact on Germany is is you know the biggest, most successful engineering companies, which are car companies, but all their supply chains. Mm. Because actually, you know, to produce a, a, an electric vehicle, you need far fewer parts. And it also shows... And so the wider ecosystem yes, is going to suffer. And less maintenance as well. Exactly. Uh, and it and also different shows maintenance. Yeah. Different maintenance. It also shows just how well China has done looking down the tracks over the past 15, 10 years in going out around the world, finding these yeah. rare earth deposits, exactly. securing that supply. The lithium uh, monopoly and yes, all of that. Yes, all of that, yeah. uh, which other car makers are now struggling to secure uh, sources of. What about the infrastructure, though? Because you can have all these amazing cars being built cheaply. But, Isabel, to your knowledge, how equipped is the Chinese, is China itself to actually handle this switchover? It's, it's, (laughs) again, once they decide to do something, they they do it. So they have built the charging stations. And actually, there was a a reluctance to adopt electric cars at first in China. (laughs) But they got around this by saying, oh, yeah, of course, you know, buy buy an internal combustion engine. Unfortunately, you can't get a licence for about 10 months. But if you buy an EV, you can have it on the road tomorrow. So there was, you know, they, they by using administrative coercion in, in big cities like Shanghai, they uh, promoted a wholesale adoption of EVs. And these cars are 
pretty good. And there's now a kind of bit of pride in having a car industry, you know, an electric car industry where uh, it previously having, you know, buying a VW or a BMW was a kind of mark of prestige. So there's been a big cultural shift in China, which is largely why the German cars are losing market share. But there's another real problem, which I think Europe hasn't begun to address with electric cars, which is not the drivetrain, but the fact that they're computers on wheels. They're collecting information, they're transmitting information, and they are a potential massive security risk in Europe because that information is going back to China. Well, that's caused problems with some of the listings of Chinese car companies in the past. The data that the US authorities require uh, stays in country, doesn't go back to China, has caused huge problems. Also, I mean, you have in China the incentive as well, that which we've seen is that it helps, you know, the air quality is massively improved in cities by having electric cars. So that has been really pushed out. And some of the innovation you've seen, particularly companies like Neo, which have kind of taken a different route and it feels a bit like the sort of old school VHS versus Betamax where Betamax was actually a better thing but yeah. VHS won out yeah. where Neo basically the, the chassis of an electric car is a sort of long flat battery yeah. uh, and what Neo does is rather than everyone having to sort of charge up at home uh, and you sort of own the battery yeah. that just you dock it slides out yeah. the battery a new one comes in fully charged and you go yeah. uh, which is in my mind a better which they're now advancing into Europe they've sort of got into Norway yeah. which is a big EV buyer in Europe Going to put, it's yeah. the conceptual going to battle with yes. whether you do battery swap outs or charge and, and, and both they exist in parallel at the moment. Mm. Yeah. And can we see a moment when an American electric car and a Chinese electric car and a German electric car will all have an interchangeable battery? I think, uh, there'll be, I think we've got quite I a way to go I think you're looking at an outbreak of world peace there, <laughs> uh, Emma. Which is, <laughs> but it's also, you. interestingly, yeah. with I think why American car companies are struggling as well. Generally, electric cars have to be bigger to accommodate the battery and European cities European drivers are much more used to smaller cars. Mm. And when you look at you know, what they're doing, so Ford, for instance, has dropped the Fiesta model, incredibly popular across Europe, works well in European cities. Uh, and they're going to the Puma, which is a sort of like small SUV type. And sort of Europeans will have to get used to slightly bigger cars, but also a lot of European cities and roads simply can't accommodate them and car parking spaces. It does, you, don't have, you don't have to have the drive shaft, you know, the, which you do mm. in an internal combustion engine. So you reconfigure the interior. And if you're sitting on a big flat battery, which is essentially the floor of the car, you actually gain some interior space. You have more flexibility with it. And then you can have your karaoke screen. There will be different (laughs) different projects and different approaches and to to consider different needs. And you'd meant to write SUV. If you look at Le Figaro this morning, they have an article about how there is actually going to be a a referendum in Paris on whether they should... Mm. I think it's triple... The, the parking charges for an SUV in, in Paris. And if you yes. go to Paris at the moment, it's brilliant in the centre of town because they have effectively made it pretty impossible. Very active mayor there. Um, mm. Yes. Woman she, who is, who is really... Yes. yes. It's Anne and Hidalgo. Hidalgo. And she is phenomenally unpopular in Paris despite the fact that she's... For obvious reasons, because if you are a driver of an SUV, if SUV or indeed if you're an Uber driver, you're going to struggle to get into town. Um, so one, one wonders on this longer electric vehicle thing, whether actually China will be able to manage that because um, remarkable engineering expertise you're displaying this morning, Isabel. I'm, I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you need your car fixing, Isabel Hilton, <laughs> China expert, 
Um, <coughs> excellent. Runs garage in North London. Um, but will Doing there... oil change in 60 <laughs> seconds flat. I've seen her. And when it comes to these electric batteries, she knows them inside out. She's amazing. Um, but, but are the Chinese able to make these tiny cars? Or, or, you know, will they be able to do it? Because the German cars are beautiful, but they're, they're bulky. But they are quite large. Yes, there is. There, there, there are. You know, the, the, the Chinese have hit pretty much every range. I mean, in fact, at the moment, the Germans still dominate the higher end. So, you know, the big, the very big and very expensive cars, or you go for a Tesla. But actually, if you move down the range, um, you find BYD, and they go all the way down to three-wheelers and electric bikes, and, you know, they, they're pretty much into new transport in a rather and, interesting way. I know globally the UK isn't, you know, the biggest car market, but it is interesting that they're actually in buying a heritage brand in the UK. So they bought MG, mm. which effectively went bust around sort of 2000, 2001. Yeah. They, they bought, bought the, the trademark. Sweden, yes. Yep. Uh, they sort of bought the trademark and the IP and, and didn't do anything with it for a long time and, and people thought it was, you know, a well-dead car brand and now it's sort of back as an electric car brand but and it's cheap and they make smaller vehicles too but I think a lot of British people are thinking that they're sort of, oh, you know, oh, it's an heritage MG. British yes. MG yes. brand and, and not realising no, it's no, entirely no. Chinese. Yeah. I remember when they actually shut down the, 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 um, the mini factory in, uh, in in Birmingham when it happened and they did a very clever thing to the Chinese. They made 99.9% of the car in China, mm. designed it in China, and then they shipped it over to the United Kingdom to finish it. Yes. <laughs> and then once you did that, you could have a made in Britain. Brand. I, I, it's a very clever way of doing it. Was, I'm not sure if they still do it. There was a moment in the John Major election campaign, which I happened to cover, in which in which he went to a, just such a factory. And when I asked him what was the British contribution, he said... We paint on the go faster stripes. It's <laughs> that about was that. the British country. Um, let's let's talking about go. I mean, we've we've spent the last fifteen minutes talking about how China is doing incredibly well in the electric car um, world. What you wanted to talk about, Isabel, in terms of China, is somewhere where it's doing very very badly, well, which is, is which is property. Absolutely, and it is. You know, China is home to the world's. By far the world's biggest bankruptcy ever, which is Evergrande, the, the world's once the world's biggest property company. And last Monday, uh, a Hong Kong court, after two years of failing to secure a restructuring for the foreign uh, creditors of Evergrande, uh, just ordered it uh, to go into liquidation. Now, this is really interesting because uh, there are a lot of foreign creditors, bondholders and, and so on. Um, some of them will get some money. Most of them will get almost nothing. Um, but... Most of Evergrande's assets are in China and it really remains to be seen how the Chinese courts will react to an order from a Hong Kong court because, as we know, you know, China's been very keen to say Hong Kong is now an integral part of China. Last week they, they, they passed a, a security law which had been extremely controversial for years and uh, so what are they going to do now? A Hong Kong court is ordering uh, a Chinese court uh, to, uh, to liquidate uh, the assets. Those assets, um, which don't look very promising, include tens of thousands of flats which people have paid for, apartments people have bought, and which have not been completed. So there are an awful lot of very cross middle class people. You know, so people pay 350, the equivalent of 350,000 um, pounds down payment on a flat. And that's what Evergrande was doing. It was completely leveraged, you know, with these upfront payments. And then it couldn't complete them. So there are these buildings, you know, behind hoardings, um, which represent completely lost assets. 
And the government is trying to work out who is going to manage this and whether the government can take over these pros- these projects. A lot of them have a sign saying we're looking for another developer, but who's going to pay for it because the money's already gone? And if they don't do anything about it, they've got a political problem with, with very disillusioned Chinese investors at a time when they're trying to get people out there spending money and cheering up a sinking economy. So it is it remains a, a really big problem. Internally, how big a problem is it? I mean, you say it's a really big problem, but I, I think obviously when you're sitting on the outside of China, it is too easy to jump into a moment of schadenfreude and go, look, China's doing something wrong here. Because up until... I think the, the the property crisis happened. There was an assumption that China was just going to plough ahead in an unstoppable fashion in absolutely every single area of, of business and world and trade and what have you. Um, but the Evergrande thing has made people think, actually, no, China is not as strong internally as one had thought. The the problem was that the, the initial model, the catch-up model that every Asian tiger followed, including Taiwan and, and South Korea and, and indeed Japan, which is that you move people off the land, you build a lot of infrastructure that you need, and all of that generates you know um, revenue, you have factories producing low-end, low-added value goods. That's fine for 20 or 30 years, and then you lose all those initial advantages. You become less cost-competitive, and you're over built an infrastructure and it really happened to Japan where they had to abandon entire you know uh, villages which were built and couldn't be maintained because the population was falling China got to that point in spades you know and and actually when China was recording very rapid growth, about 40% of that GDP growth was pouring concrete. It was building. It was seizing peasants' land, rezoning it, borrowing and building. And that was um, that was fine until it wasn't. But when it wasn't, you not only did you have provincial governments which are deeply in debt and, and depositors who have lost their money, but you've also lost the engine of growth. And China, for the last several years has been trying to be less export dependent, more dependent on people spending, but that requires confidence and that's gone. So we are really, it is a big and and pretty intractable problem. And outside, when we see a big and intractable problem happening in China and you're in the, let's say, the United Kingdom, the European Union, and you start looking at the problems that China is now experiencing. How does that have a repercussion with us here, for example, in the United Kingdom? Because I can just remember what we're talking a good two decades ago now when David Cameron, former Prime Minister, now Foreign Secretary, was absolutely going gung-ho at China. The, the, you know, this this was the new great... The you golden know, age. It was. He and George Osborne like to call it. It, yeah. it. it had every China watcher crawling under the table saying, no, don't do it. <laughs> Told you so, don't do it. But I mean, now we have this, this, this idea where politically we're back tracking with China, the difficulties with the relationship with Ukraine, with China and and its alliance with Russia. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing an economy which isn't doing well. Yeah, isn't doing well. I think everyone watching is thinking, you know, is China Evergrande the new uh, Lehman Brothers? Uh, It seems, though, that it is more sort of isolated than that. It's not as kind of the the debt isn't as woven into sort of global financial systems. And at the end of the day, I think everyone just thinks at some point the Chinese government and its massive levers and control of the economy will step in and and do something, whether that is sort of seizing the properties and finishing them off and and people being able to live in them or not. It is just, though, interesting that in, in economies around the world, the real struggles, it seems to be is 
with where demographics are it is just sort of housing for young people seems to be just tripping up every single economy you for the first time in many european countries in the us as well you're seeing this huge rise in multi-generational families something that was sort of not traditional uh, for the last 60 to 70 years in these economies it was you sort of grew up you rented for a bit you saved a bit of deposit and then a multiplier of your flat which of your salary which was four times would buy you a house or a prop, or a flat i mean to buy a house now in in the UK, for many people, it is a pipe dream. The average age of buying is now knocking on 40 years old for a first-time mm-hmm. buyer. Um, there are huge problems uh, when it comes to developing properties uh, because of sort of, you know, a lot of nimbyism, particularly in this country. Um, and it's interesting to, to see where, you know, where sort of developers, particularly in London's attention falls to. Interesting link to China here. So I live in uh, Greenwich and Greenwich Peninsula, which is where the Millennium Dome is, the O2, the famous concert venue. That entire peninsula effectively is owned by a Hong Kong property developer called Night Dragon. Uh, and they have essentially land backed that land for the past two decades and very slowly developed it. Now certain things with local government mean that you have to sort of pay more into um, into local infrastructure in order to develop. And so they rushed through plans that they had approved somewhat a decade ago for buildings. They've redone them, submitted them before a deadline for this new increase in percentage into the local economy. Uh, and, and they're very aggressively, I think, targeting the uh, Hong Kong market because all of the three-bedroom properties have gone. There's suddenly a lot more studios, a lot more one-bed, and very few two beds in them Uh, and they've rearranged these buildings and now they're sort of getting into building quicker again Um, but what they're also doing in London which I think is really fascinating uh, is um, one or two of these buildings which were going to be sold off they're now just keeping and having as entirely rented buildings uh, because what that does is it creates a constant flow of income to them. They can then do what they want to them later on, uh, but it also exempts them. In London, for instance, you have to build, if you're building properties now, you have to build a certain percentage, which is social housing, a certain percentage, which is shared ownership, which is a scheme to help local people sort of slowly buy in uh, and then fully private. Um, But to do these rented buildings, you don't have to do any of that. You can just have a rented asset. It's like a big, owning a big hotel, effectively. I so, remember when the HS2 um, high-speed rail, not HS2, um, the Elizabeth Line, sorry, a controversial large transport infrastructure project <laughs> in the United Kingdom. Easy to get confused. A lot of digging. Lots of digging and lots of marketing abroad. And there was, an, there was a sort of an unconfirmed rumour when the, the Elizabeth Line was being built was that obviously it was going to create wonderful new pockets of... Um, homes where you Willich could Arsenal, big one, yeah. Where you could you could, for the first time ever, buy a house or a flat within half an hour's transport travel time into the centre of town. And there was a rumour going round that these spaces, these little pockets, mm. were being marketed to Hong Kong mm. and being marketed to China before they were being marketed to Londoners. And there was that open thing, wasn't there? As well, just bringing that that into you. And we're going to go to Bangkok in a minute to hear from James Chambers because he will have plenty to say on this subject. But the idea that um, to to openly attract those Chinese investors, we're seeing you know the consequences now of what, what Vinny was saying. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's not actually it's not just Chinese. There are there are 
parts of London, the, the, the higher end parts of London, where if you go around on a winter's evening, there are almost no lights on. And they, these are properties which... Full-size safety deposit boxes. Exactly. Yeah. So, the so, vertical deposit boxes. Yeah. There's an awful lot of, of loose money in the world, and London is a safe place to put your money. I mean, unless you happen to be a friend of Vladimir Putin, your money's pretty safe in London, and, and the property market has been uh, over-robust, if anything. But that has priced people out, combined with the fact that, you know, one Conservative government, Mrs Thatcher, sold off the social housing and then didn't allow local authorities to build more. Mm. So we have, you know, this is the end of And the of fact it. there are zero requirements for buying property in the UK when it comes to contributions, yeah, residency, absolutely. citizenship, anything like yeah. that. So the whole market is skewed against the, you know, the average... British citizen who wants it. I couldn't buy my own house now. You know, I bought it many years ago when it was, as you say, a reasonable multiple of my income. But now it's completely out of, it would be completely out of reach for someone on my income. Let's head to Bangkok now to hear from our Asia editor, James Chambers. Good afternoon, James. Good morning, Emma. You've been listening patiently and waiting uh, to come and participate in this conversation. But as you can probably tell, we're talking about Chinese influence and large infrastructure projects. That's not just happening in the UK, is it? No, it's very very interesting to listen to uh, Vinny's analysis of the London uh, real estate market. don't, I, I'm like Isabel, I can't afford to uh, buy a property now, and that's why I'm hiding out in Bangkok. Um, but, uh, I mean, the Thais uh, are, are very close uh, links with the Chinese, and uh, and they, uh, at the moment, have been touting uh, a huge uh, infrastructure project. You talked about the Elizabeth Line crossing London. This is something they're call, calling the Land Bridge, uh, and it's uh, an idea to... Um, to build rail and, and road links across southern Thailand, where the, where the country's at its narrowest, linking the two seas, the Gulf of Thailand and the Andaman. Um, and this is a very, very old idea. It goes back to the 19th century when it was uh, initially a, an idea for a canal, a bit like the, the Panama Canal. Um, and the new government has taken it up again, uh, and they're going to try and uh, pitch it to the, the Chinese uh, and try and get uh, the Chinese to, to invest in it. So that could be the you know, the uh, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is backed by the Chinese or some of the private companies. Um, And the prime minister came out uh, just this weekend just to say how keen uh, the Chinese are to back it. Um, So I guess the suggestion is that uh, there might be a bit of Chinese loose change down the back of the couch to uh, fund something that's estimated to cost 25 billion euros. It's an interesting idea that that actively seeking Chinese investment into infrastructure and just becomes par for the course, especially in, the, in your part of the world. Well, that's right. I mean, the Chinese have been going around Asia trying to essentially force projects and money on countries like Thailand uh, and trying to build all manner of infrastructure. Uh, so it's kind of funny that this one is going the other way. Uh, but I guess there's a, there's a few different reasons why the Chinese might be interested in this. I mean, the, the, the headline is that at the moment, you know, cargo ships going from Chinese ports sailing to towards India and Europe, they have to go through the uh, the Strait of Malacca, uh, you know, around Singapore uh, and Malaysia, and that's a very congested uh, uh, channel, um, and so it takes a, a long time. So I guess that the Thai idea is you can you can reduce that from about nine days to five days and save a lot of money, um, but I guess the real appeal to the Chinese is that they're worried about uh, a future war with the US and the US's ability to shut down the Strait of Malacca and obviously cut off China 
So they won't be able to sell, send their products to market and they won't be able to perhaps get the, 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 the resources they need to feed their country. So they've, you know, a lot of the infrastructure they've build, been building, um, uh, not just this land bridge, is, is ways of circumventing um, you know, any attempts by, I guess, Western allies to, uh, to kind of, I guess, strangle China or, or, or you know, restrict its access. Uh, so, you know, even though this might be touted as a, an efficient and, and cost-effective way uh, of getting their uh, their goods to market, it also has a uh, a, a secondary uh, appeal. And I can imagine the Chinese are, are very interested. Isabel, your take on this? Yes, I, I, well, the Malacca Straits have been a, a, a headache for Chinese um, security analysts for quite a long time. And it, it's, it is about um, exporting goods, but it's also about importing energy. Because once China had um, exhausted its domestic oil supplies, which it did in the 90s, all the oil and gas that China uses has to be imported, and most of it was seaborne. So they've been building pipelines, um, Russian gas pipelines or the Shui pipeline, which goes across Myanmar, which is an oil and gas pipeline, trying to diversify the supply so that they were less uh, dependent on the Malacca Straits. But the other problem, because of this energy uh, dependence on imports, is that it has tended to make China cling to coal, which for climate reasons is a very bad thing. So that instead of phasing coal down because of the vulnerability the Malacca Straits and the concern about the deteriorating geopolitics. Um, they have uh, they 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 can't you know they can't supply all their needs um, by pipeline. So there's a bit of a safety blanket still with coal. James, let's move to a story that you and I were talking about a little bit earlier this week, which is this ruling by a Thai constitutional court. Um, that move forward, one of the main opposition voices, must stop campaigning uh, for reform for the Les Majesté law. It, this has done two things, hasn't it? It's caused almost a death blow to move forward, but also it's consolidated the um, entrenched nature of Les Majesté. Yes, that's right. I mean, when we were speaking on, on Wednesday's Globalist, it was breaking news. Um, and the ruling came out saying that, that it essentially uh, you know, breached the constitution by campaigning to reform the Les Majesté laws um, during last year's election. So the court ruled that this was you know, unconstitutional and also that they have to, to stop doing it uh, immediately, uh, which kind of undermines one of the core reasons for, for Move Forward's existence and for their popularity. Um, the, the interesting thing about the constitutional court's ruling um, is that it doesn't come with any penalties. Um, so there's no immediate effects of it. But obviously, everybody knows here in Thailand how these things normally go down. And this is step one of a process that may well lead to um, move forward being you know, wound up and its key leaders being banned from politics for at least 10 years and perhaps uh, for their lifetime. You know, this has happened already to this same progressive movement. It used to be a party called Future Forward that got banned. Its leaders got banned. Then it morphed into Move Forward. It's likely to be banned and its leaders are likely to be banned. Um, and so uh, it is a setback. But I guess what um, the leaders of Move Forward are saying is that, you know, our ideas are bigger than our personalities. And so even if uh, people like uh, Kun Peter Lemjeroenrat uh, gets banned from politics for life. It's not going to kill the idea. Um, and 
I mean, there's already talk or, or, or rumors that they've registered a new name and it'll just uh, spring up under some, some other name. So it's a bit like uh, whack-a-mole for the, for the conservative elites here. They're trying to kill an I- idea uh, and that's going to improve pretty impossible. Finally, James, a quick word on Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year. Well, yes, Lunar New Year, because we all call it Chinese New Year, but we forget that, uh, I mean, it's the, it's the biggest holiday of the year for the Vietnamese. I mean, they call it Tet and for the, the Koreans as well. So um, it's not just the Chinese celebrating uh, the, the Chinese New Year, which is uh, next weekend, but uh, you know, Friday evening will be the big would be the big kind of meal uh, in Chinese households. And at the moment, it's, it's a huge holiday. So if anyone in Europe is sending emails to uh, colleagues or contacts in this part of the world and not getting a response, you know, that'll be why. This is, you know, as big, if not bigger than Christmas. And people do go on very, very long holidays. James, is it Year of the Dragon? What are you? <laughs> I'm a pig. Excellent. Uh, but, but pigs... <laughs> But pigs are very positive out here, so um, I'm, uh, you know, I, it's seen as a very good, a good sign. But then again, so is every single sign. Oh come on, uh, James Chambers, our happy pig in Thailand. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Poor James, what a confession. I, I think I'm a rat. If it's any consolation I'm, to I'm James, I'm a dragon. Apparently, <laughs> are you a dragon? Ah, oh, you're a dragon. There we go. Well, it is. It is a year. The dragon year is when you want to have your sons born. So I think the I think the government was hoping there would be an up taken birth but there's a complication I mean yeah year, dragon, which is charismatic that, intelligent confident powerful lucky and gifted yes but yes mar- all I'm of married. those all of those but but it's also because of a peculiarity of the way the dates fall this year uh, this dragon year uh, is a year without spring because the, the in the lunar calendar the start of spring Lichen falls before the beginning of new year and then after the beginning of, of next year's new year and that means that you shouldn't get married. It's known as the year of the widow. There's no spring. Spring is when, you know, spring is auspicious, but if there's no spring, your marriage is doomed. So so there's now there's now a campaign going on in China saying, Oh, don't don't believe these superstitions. Oh, by the way, happy year of the dragon. <laughs> Another blow to the economy as the uh, wedding industry exactly. goes down it for crashes, a while. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you can have children, you can have more children, but don't, but don't get, get married. married. And don't buy a house. That's fine. I'm married to a dragon and I gave birth to a dragon. Mm, so well, I live in fearsome. a house. So Vinny, right, that's Daenerys taught, Targaryen that's over there. taught me so much about you, Vinny. I know I'll know how to handle you now. <laughs> I've, I've been taming dragons for, for years and years. So it's auspicious to have a dragon baby, is it? Oh, certainly, yes. yes. Why? Uh, because dragons are, you know, strong, mythical, scaly creatures. <laughs> Why would you not want one? Yeah, they breathe. I've got two, and they breathe quite a lot of fire. Um, Vinny, our house dragon for yes. the day. I'm a, t- I'm a tiger, by the way. Um, house dragon. What have you spotted in the papers today? Uh, lots of coverage uh, in the UK and European papers of a really, you know, we use the term historic, but it was uh, over- overblown sometimes. Uh, but um, it was a really historic day in Belfast yesterday. Not only was it two years to the day since uh, the government had collapsed, uh, essentially Northern Ireland has been sort of, sort of in a sort of running itself kind of just buffering mode for two years as Dublin uh, and Westminster have looked on uh, in horror at the, at the DUP. The only party really in Northern Ireland who wanted Brexit, uh, Northern Ireland was the part of the United Kingdom of the four nations that voted hardest remain. 
uh, and the DUB, DUP through Theresa May's sort of uh, misfortune in the 2017 election have been holding cards but played them all wrong over the last couple of years and they've been punished by the electorate and for the very first time Sinn Féin, uh, which is a Republican party for, for those on the outside, Republicans uh, believe that Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland should be reunited, that Northern Ireland should no longer be part of the United Kingdom. The DUP are unionists, they want it to stay the way it is. Now, uh, when Ireland was partitioned, um, six counties that formed Northern Ireland, to show you, you know, how much the system was designed against the events that we saw yesterday, even Stormont, which is the parliament in Northern Ireland, uh, is designed with six floors. It has six pillars, and the number six is a key part of the architecture because of the six counties, showing that they were totally separate to the rest of the counties uh, in the Republic of Ireland. And you had, um, you know, the Troubles, which did start out as a civil rights movement for Catholics who were completely, um, you know, at a, uh, at a disadvantage in the society in terms of jobs, housing, education, even voting rights. Uh, that's where it started. And, and by 1990, after the you know, horrible decades of the Troubles, 98, you get the Good Friday Agreement, which sets up power sharing in Northern Ireland. Uh, but for many in the unionist camp, they thought that they would still hold the top job. Uh, and that's how it has been in the decades since. But for the first time now, uh, we have Sinn Féin uh, as the first minister uh, holding that post, uh, meaning that they are the dominant party. Uh, and the whole des design of the state since 1921 was enshrined for Protestant unionists to have the majority, to have the assembly to control it. And that is all over. And it really, for them, sort of looked yesterday like a funeral uh, because what we will see in the next few years, particularly with demographic change in Northern Ireland, is so you've now got Michelle O'Neill, who is the first minister in Northern Ireland. Um, she stood up yesterday and she said that she wanted... Well, interestingly, the first thing she said was in Gaelic. Uh, and mm. that's a huge problem uh, for the DUP. Yeah, they have tried to... Yeah, Irish language, which the DUP have tried to suppress. They don't want to fund in the education system. It's been a bone of contention between the two parties. Uh, and then she gave an address where she wanted to work... Uh, you know, she wanted to put the past in the past and work... Uh, for all people of Northern Ireland and sort of build the bridges across the community because it is a post-conflict society whose wounds have all been opened up due to Brexit. But she did say in an interview last night that in the next decade, she expects there will be a border poll in Northern Ireland well, this is an on reunification. Thing. One thing that, it, which is, which goes back to the fact that a, a huge amount of this, these problems were down to the Brexit agreement or lack of agreement and the fear that they had to be creating a border in the island of on the island of Ireland mm. and the fact remains that internally this is an existential struggle which will not go away and probably can never go away for the no. it's been going for a century we can happily well not happily we can comfortably see this happening for another century however if you are sitting looking outside and you're part of the european union you're a part of britain or indeed you're anywhere else in the world the relevance of this this bringing together of pulling of, of the restoration of the government means what well i mean the next thing that will is likely to happen is that in the south Sinn Féin which is the same party it is likely to have the first female uh, prime minister of ireland the Taoiseach, in mary lou macdonald so that means Sinn Féin for the first time being in control in northern ireland and the republic so that then heightens all of the talk uh, and you've got 
if you're looking in, you know, <laughs> there is no greater constituency than Irish Americans. You know, they uh, they have. I think a lot of people in Westminster even was there was a lot of naivety in Britain, partially because it's suppressed in our education system about the situation and feelings in Northern Ireland. Even at the top levels of government, you had a Northern Ireland secretary that didn't know what a unionist was and a Republican was, and she thought still that she should admit that. Uh, but they were also completely blown away by how strong and effective Irish diplomacy is and how strong the congressional links are. You know, I got a, a release from uh, the Irish uh, Foreign Office the other day talking about their plans for St. Patrick's Day. And this is something that kind of no other country really has. I mean, Lunar New Year, maybe China does sort of big things around that in lots of countries. But Every day, every year, mm. Ireland has a fixed calendar appointment uh, around St. Patrick's Day. There is always a meeting with the US president. Mm. There are events. I think they're sending diplomats, I think, something to dozens of countries this year. It's absolutely huge. It's absolutely States. huge yeah. to use now St. Patrick's Day, sort of universally, you know, seen as a bit of a fun uh, day and a kind of, you know, start of spring. Uh, but, the, the, you know, the, there is no one ever describes themselves as an English American. People describe themselves as an Irish American, an Italian American, yeah. a German American. No one ever describes themselves as an English American. And Britain got caught out by that. And it's very clear, you know, if Joe Biden is still yeah. in office next year, you know, he will be very receptive to hearing calls of it's time to, you know, maybe hear what America thinks about uh, having a border poll. And there's a lot of sport in Congress, you know, that old anti-British feeling and colonialism and things like that as to whether or not this gains momentum. And yeah, what does it mean? Well, it would mean that Firstly, David Cameron would be in history not only the Prime Minister that took Britain out of the European Union, he might have kept Scotland, but he then lost Northern Ireland because that the, the line from Brexit to Northern Ireland and, uh, and Irish reunification, which many people raised alarms about uh, and they were dismissed in Westminster, uh, is, is very clear. And that is how David Cameron, our current Foreign Secretary <laughs> bestriding the world, will go down uh, as the Prime Minister who lost Ireland. And he lost Europe. Yeah, and he lost Europe as well. Uh, let's move on in the Could time. Could I just yes, make one tiny point that. about the, 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 the cultural shift that you have, not only do you have a, a, a female first minister and, and uh, as you say, uh, a nationalist first minister, but the deputy uh, uh, first minister is also a woman, uh, the DUP, Emma Little-Pengeli. Mm. And if you do have a female Taoiseach, I mean, this is a completely different Ireland. If you think back to the troubles and the, the hard men yelling at each other yeah. and Ian Paisley cursing everybody out. This is a very different place. And there is nothing as formidable as an Irish mammy as well. Uh, but it does remind <laughs> well, me of that. Mary Robinson did change the chemistry of Irish politics she quite did. dramatically. So. But it does remind me, of, there's a quote in Alan Bennett's play, The History Boys, where the exasperated female history teacher says, all of history is just women coming along with a bucket to mop up after <laughs> men's messes. <laughs> Speaking of message, Good point. <laughs> we do we do need to address the US UK strikes on uh, the Houthi rebels in the last twenty four hours. Following on from the US carrying out airstrikes in Iraq and Syria, and the Iraqis saying this is not a good idea. I mean, talking about standing with a mock it, with a mm. with a bucket and a mop. I mean, when you wake up in the United Kingdom or to hear that uh, US airstrikes have taken place on Iraq, you do start wondering which decade you're living in and, and if anybody anywhere has read any history books. Um, Vinny, you wanted to raise this, didn't you? Yeah, I think it's interesting, but it. I would say, you know, we say it's US and UK. I mean, I, I was on duty yesterday and got the sort of statement, which was a really interesting statement because it's a joint statement from the governments of Australia, Bahrain, Denmark, Canada, the Netherlands, New Zealand, United Kingdom, United States um, on these strikes. You know, this is a very global task force. All of these countries, whilst it has been US and UK planes overnight, all of these countries 
provided support logistically uh, with their navies as well. Because, and I'm really curious what Isabel thinks about this. I mean, we are, you know, it is, yes, okay, the two dominant Western, you know, Anglo powers bombing another country uh, in the Middle East. But this route, and particularly when it comes to China, I mean, the economic hit to China's economy uh, when it's already struggling in all of its shipping to Europe, having to go around Africa rather than through the Suez Canal. It is fascinating that they're not putting more pressure uh, on Iran to rein the Houthi rebels in for, for me. And and the idea that it's a sort of, you know, US, UK versus, you know, this group in Yemen, it's it's all global trade is dependent Absolutely. on this Absolutely. When you look at the countries, I mean, gosh, the Netherlands, they have quite a few ports. I wonder why they're mm. joining in the fight as well. It, it is that... Um, it's that moment, isn't it, when politics almost pretends to be, well, sort of trade issues pretend to be politics. And there's that reassurance from the the, the British Defence Secretary saying, we're not trying to entice things, we're trying to calm things down. And you just think, well, what, we we kind of know why. And, and I wonder why it's not been discussed. Well, I think, I mean, from the Chinese perspective, I think there's just a, you know, it, I, I think this situation reveals China's lack of experience in handling complicated international situations where its interests are directly involved. So there's a, you can see them struggling between blaming the United States for everything, which is a kind of propaganda plus, um, but failing to use their interests. Chinese, Chinese refiners bought 90% of Iran's crude oil last year. I mean, that is a massive leverage. And it's only it only represents 20% of China's own oil supply, so it could shop elsewhere. The American Americans have been begging the Chinese to put some pressure on Iran. The Iranians told Reuters quite recently that yes, the the Chinese had asked them to to be careful, but to be careful of Chinese interests. So what you have now is that when Chinese ships are crossing the danger zone, they indicate their uh, nationality and they get escorted, They they get safe passage. So China is looking after its own shipping, but is doing absolutely nothing about the Wider, about the wider situation. And if you're aspiring to global leadership, that just is not enough. It's like, you know, the peace plan for Ukraine, which wasn't a peace plan. It's just that funny thing that what, 20, 25 years ago, we were all talking about globalisation and how this would open, how, you know, freeing up trade would open up relationships and it would create dare I say, it's a much better place. That you know, yeah. If you do well with trade, you do well with citizenship. We saw that before the First World War too. It turned out not to be true. Finally, let's have a look at what we're all doing and the fun stuff. We've got a minute. So um, you've been binge-watching films. I managed yes. to get Anatomy of a Fall under my belt. Ah. Great fun. Well, not fun, obviously. It's With not. a lead actress who's also nominated for In Zone, Zone of, of Interest, Interest mm. which I've got to say, I love the cinema anyway. Um, you have to be in the right mindset for this film. It's unlike any Holocaust film that you've seen before see it in cinema the sound design and we're going to have an interview actually I've got an interview coming up with the sound designer who's up for the Oscar and the BAFTA and everything uh, in a few weeks time in Monaco um, but the sound design is incredible because you never see into the camp you, you're basically in the house which is which they set up like uh, a full house with hidden cameras that films the acting going on and you just see the wall perimeter and then sort of smoke from the camp and all you hear constantly is noise the noise is like another character it's an incredible experience in the cinema it's it's one i would definitely say to go and see i saw also um all of the strangers some good performances claire foy and jamie bell didn't like the ending i don't want to give anything away but 
really had a problem with the ending. But the thing I've loved <laughs> this month, which I would highly recommend if you have Apple TV, Slow Horses with Gary Oldman and Kristen Scott Thomas. It's an adaptation of a book series uh, about sort of uh, British guy, spies who've messed up and get dumped in a sort of dumping ground house. It is fantastic and Isabel, hilarious. He's, he's given us our list. One th- we've only got 15 seconds. You're going to have to tell us what you what well, you're no, I'm, I'm really encouraged by Vinny's list because we have tickets for uh, for, uh, for for the, the Holocaust movie Zone this evening. Interest. Zone of Interest this evening. So that'll be my um, I, the, my cultural tick for the week. Isabel Hilton, Vincent McAvenny, James Chambers, and Captain Tyler Brule. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday, and thanks also to our producer Mariella Bevan. And uh, Mariella was behind the studio controls as well today. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week, but until then, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you.